0: Welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 199th episode of the Nauticast titled The Red Will Run, an analysis of a storm of swords, Cattle and Six, in which Rob and his followers finally arrive at the twins for Edmure's wedding. And before you ask... Yes, Catelyn Make sure that Rob gets a snack as soon as he gets in the door. Forget about guest right. That's just that's just a classic mom move right there.
1: Look, I'm 30 or 40 years old and my mom still fusses about what I eat. So I totally get it.
0: (laughs) Catelyn's like, oh, if only Rob lived that long. Oh, if only I could fuss over Rob into his 40s. Alas, alas. So, uh, very excited to welcome our special guest for this episode. We've had them on the Not cast before, back when I was doing uh, solo-ups for a while. Everyone, please welcome back Alex. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. Happy to be on the, the official cast now.
0: Exactly. Moving on up to, to Westeros, the fanciest yeah. place to be, uh, with our, our, our penultimate Catalan chapter. Glad we got you on for, for at least one more before she steps out the door. Of We, we, we lose our best POV.
2: No, I definitely agree. Cat is uh, my vote for best POV. I'm happy whenever all the podcast folks want to have like the round table fight about it. I'll be there for the with the, the cat banner. Um,
0: yeah, the, like, the little sports banner just says cat. Yeah. Just little Tully colors. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, but no, super excited to to be here on this episode uh, again. Like one of the last few cat episodes, it's such a a great run with this POV of what she covers, and um, sad sad to see her go, but uh, happy to be here for the send off.
0: It's a great a great run for sure. She goes out in fine style. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows, anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Lady of the Land of Lakes, who asks, "Do you think any phrase will survive the coming free apocalypse?" Good question. Anyone? One, two, three. Maybe none. Maybe not a single fray. There are a lot of them. That's a that's a long list. That's a long kill list, even for, for by Arya's standards. What do you think? Will Will any any of them squeak it out?
2: I think you you hit the nail on the head there. There's just so many of them that I just looked up the House Frey on a, a, a wiki of Ice and Fire, and there's just... Oh, there's that just, family tree is
0: just yeah, endless. It's,
2: it's several different sections of family trees, so now I don't think any... I, I think there will be people, unfortunately, that have the last name Frey and survive the series. I do think that all the architects of the Red Wedding are going to be uh, not to survive in the series, um, and probably with like the ensuing like fray civil war they'll like take out some of like the the leadership like the present generation so that's true if little and big walder can somehow keep their no one of them's already dead um true little walder already yeah, little, only got the big yeah, one up there now if, if, if big walder can keep his head down he might actually end up being like lord of the fray uh lord fray
0: <laughs> at least he's not at the Twins when it's all going down exactly. Yeah, he just has to survive
2: what, winter, so, you know, easy.
0: What about the, like, the nicer phrase? Because I go two ways on that, like the people who weren't at the Red Wedding. People like uh, Perwin and Olivar. Because on one hand, I'm like, well, they could be spared. They don't have the curse. Maybe the Brotherhood won't want to get them. On the other hand, I feel like it would be very George if the Brotherhood, as well as getting the obviously bad phrase, killed the ones we like, just to make us go, oh, no, our perfect revenge. Complicated. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head because I think it becomes a little too nice and neat and clean if it's Uh just the phrase we hate getting murdered. And I think George's themes on revenge, especially as like perhaps uh, shown in the Dornish plot, shows that revenge kind of gets out of control and um, all sorts of people start dying, people who shouldn't, innocents. I do think there's a chance for some of the innocents to get out of it. I think there is a reason that among, uh, there are many reasons, but, you know, George spotlights a couple of the missing phrase in this chapter, like Oliver Frey. Um, and uh, Sir Raynaud. No, that's uh, one of the Westerlings, but the one who had escorted Kat down to the south uh, when she parlayed with uh, the Baratheons. And I really hope Rosalind <laughs> makes it out of this. I hope so, too. Um, just because she she gets a really <laughs> raw deal out of everything. So, um, if one Frey has to survive, I would pick her, and then I'd pick Olivar. Um, and then after that, it's kind of, well, you know, shit happens. <laughs> <and> <laughs> I, 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 I can live with that. It'll be sad for some of you, but you know, it'll be tremendous content for content for the rest of us. So. The final
0: words of House Frey, shit happens. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I, and uh, Alex brought up a great, great point that it's not just about Stoneheart and the Brotherhood killing the Freys; it's also about Freys killing Freys, which we've already seen, probably with Big Walder killing Little Walder up at Winterfell. That certainly seems to have been the case, allegedly, and probably right. We'll see. You know, it's just, who's to say? No witnesses, uh, but. Also, uh, Edwin and Black Walder, who we see in this chapter, really seem to have it in for each other. So them killing each other, does seem to be the likeliest outcome uh, there with the two of them. But yeah, I think a co- maybe a couple of the nice ones, a couple of the fringe ones, hopefully some of the kids. But yeah, any- anyone who's trying to seize power for themselves, I think, has a big old target on their back. And the Brotherhood is taking aim. So thank you so much to the Lady of the Land of Lakes for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced, forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month, early access to our regular episodes, and again, the right to force us to answer your questions. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 6, so let's jump into the synopsis. They heard the green fork before they saw it. An endless sorceress, like the growl of some great beast. The river was a boiling torrent, half again as wide as it had been last year, when Rob had led his army here and vowed to take a fray to bride as price of his crossing. He needed Lord Walder and his bridge then, and he needs them even more now. Catelyn's heart was full of misgivings as she watched the murky green waters swirl past. There is no way we will ford this, nor swim across, and it could be a moon's turn before these waters fall again. In retrospect, Cat, you would have been better off swimming for it, but hindsight is twenty twenty, and anyway, you'll be taking a dip in the river soon enough. Rob gets his entourage together as they approach the twins. He's got Mom and Uncle Edmure by his side, and his brother-in-law, Reynald Westerling, bearing his direwolf banner. Gray on white, these colors don't run. The gatehouse towers emerged from the rain like ghosts, hazy gray apparitions that grew more solid the closer they rode. The Frey stronghold was not one castle, but two. Mirror images in wet stone standing on opposite sides of the water, linked by a great arched bridge. From the center of its span rose the water tower, the river running straight and swift below. Channels had been cut from the banks to form moats that made each twin an island. The rains had turned the moats to shallow lakes. Across the turbulent waters, Catalan could see several thousand men encamped around the eastern castle, their banners hanging like so many drowned cats from the lances outside their tents. The rain made it impossible to distinguish colors and devices. Most were gray, it seemed to her. Though, beneath such skies, the whole world seemed gray. Hey, Arya said the same thing last time. I guess mother and daughter have more in common than either one would admit. Catelyn tells Rob that the phrase will try to provoke him, so keep your prideful piehole shut. Except to eat, that is. Do that right away. Rob says he's more wet than hungry, but Catalan points out that guest rate only kicks in once you've had a snack. Rob is dismissive of Guestright, saying he needs only his army to protect him. As usual with Rob and Cat, they're both right, and they're both wrong. The Frey greeting party rides out for them, led by Sir Ryman, the new heir to the twins, and unpleasant even by Frey standards. If anything, though, his sons riding with him are worse. Edwin, an arrogant prick, and Blackwalder, who is basically a version of Euron who never dropped acid. Oh, but the third one, Peter Pimple, he seems alright. I hope nothing bad happens to him by the end of the book. Something bad almost happens to him right here, as Grey Wind suddenly starts growling and rushes the phrase. Peter's horse throws him, and Black Walder pulls out his sword. Rob calls off his dog, and offers Peter his horse as an apology, but Peter refuses, and rides with his brothers. Ryman notices that they're late, and did not bring, quote, the woman, aka Queen Jane. Jane, it rhymes with pain. Black Walder says Big Daddy Walder will be most put out by her absence. Oh no, we can't have that, he's usually so pleasant. Edwin takes the reins, so to speak, and tells Rob and Catelyn that the Freys have set aside rooms for them, and set up several gigantic feast tents to keep the rain off their men. Edmure speaks up next. Remember Edmure, the guy whose wedding this is? He's here too, and he'd like to meet his bride. Edwin says she's waiting for him inside. Edmure fell in beside Catelyn. The late Lord Frey might have seen fit to welcome us in person, he complained. I am his liege lord, as well as his son-to-be, and Rob's his king. When you are one in ninety, brother, see how eager you are to go riding in the rain. Yet she wondered if that was the whole truth of it. Lord Walder normally went about in a covered litter, which would have kept the worst of the rain off him. A deliberate slight? If so, it might be the first of many yet to come. So many slights. Nothing but slights. A storm of slights. They all ride for the twins, but Grey Wind refuses to cross the drawbridge until Rob, the wolf whisperer, convinces him to move. Walter Rivers says Grey Wind is afraid of the water. No, he's afraid of you. And Lothar says he just needs a leg of mutton. No, maybe he needs one of your legs. Rob decides to leave the wolf behind with Reynold Westerling. Catelyn thinks it's a smart move, while all we can do is scream ineffectually from the back seat like Walter White. Gout and brittle bones had taken their toll of old Walter Frey. They found him propped up in his high seat with a cushion beneath him and an ermine robe across his lap. His chair was black oak, its back carved into the semblance of two stout towers, joined by an arched bridge, so massive that its embrace turned the old man into a grotesque child. There was something of the vulture about Lord Balder, and rather more of the weasel. His bald head, spotted with age, thrust out from his scrawny shoulders on a long pink neck. Loose skin dangled beneath his receding chin, his eyes were runny and clouded, and his toothless mouth moved constantly sucking at the empty air as a babe sucks at his mother's breast. Worst baby ever. All-time, historical, bottom of the list, Walder Frey, worst baby in Westeros. By Walder's side stands Lady Frey number 8, and at his feet sits a man George describes as a somewhat younger version of Walder with larger and more vacant eyes. He's wearing nice clothes, but also a fool's crown with brass bells. Catelyn thinks that Walder always kept this grandson hidden away during official visits, and wonders if that crown might be a dig at Rob. Again, nothing but slights all the way down. The room is full to bursting with phrase, but Walder, as usual, speaks for them all. You'll forgive me if I do not kneel, I know. My legs no longer work as they did, though that which hangs between them serves well enough. <laughs> His mouth split in a toothless smile as he eyed Rob's crown. Some would say it's a poor king who crowns himself with bronze, your grace. Okay, some would say that. Not him. Some are saying that. Others. Walder's not saying that, except that he literally just did. Rob explains that bronze and iron are stronger than gold and silver. That's why his ancestors, the last kings of the north, wore that kind of crown. Walder notes that it didn't do them much good when the dragons arrived. Which, true enough, but it's not like gold crowns would do the trick there either. Just ask the gardeners. Oh wait, you can't, because they're dead. Walder introduces his grandson with the fool's crown as Aegon, son of Stevron, who died in service to Rob. Rob praises Stevron, but Walder tells him he's wasting his breath before turning to his other honored guests. Well, Lady Catelyn, I see you have returned to us. And young Sir Edmure, the victor of the stone mill. Oh, Lord Tully now. I'll need to remember that. You're the fifth Lord Tully I've known. I outlived the other four. <laughs> Your bride's about here somewhere. Suppose you want to look at her? "'I would, my lord, and you'll have it. "'But clothed, she's a modest girl, and a maid. "'You won't see her naked till the bedding.' "'Lord Walder cackled. (laughs) "'Soon enough, soon enough.' "'Walder tells his son, Benfrey, "'to bring Rosalind out for inspection, "'and then asks Rob where his bride is hiding. "'Rob says Jane remained at River Run, "'and Walder says that makes him sad, "'ever so sad, wounded even. "'I wanted to behold her with mine own weak eyes. "'We all did, (laughs) heh. "'Isn't that so, my lady?' Pale, wispy Lady Frey seemed startled that she would be called upon to speak. "Uh, Yes, my lord, we also wanted to pay homage to Queen Jane. She must be fair to look on. Yeah, I'm guessing Walder generally forgets she's there. Gotta feel bad for Lady Frey, although of course a lot of the people in this room are about to have it much worse. I guess she gets alpha-easy compared to the show. Rob confirms that Jane is indeed, most fair, a proper smoke show, though his voice is cold in a way that makes Catelyn think of Ned. Walder ignores that. He's too busy going for the Olympic world record in pettiness. He says Jane must be hotter than his own daughters, or else how could Rob have possibly broken his oath? Rob says, yeah, he's here to apologize. Apologies.
1: <laughs> yes, you have had to
0: make one, I recall. I'm old, but I don't forget such things. Not like some kings, it seems. The young remember nothing when they see a pretty face and a nice firm pair of teats, isn't that so? I was the same. Some might say I still I am. <laughs> They'd be wrong, though. Wrong as you were. Ah, but now you're here to make amends. It was my girls you spurned, though. Maybe it's them should hear you beg for pardon, your grace. My maiden girls. Here, have a look at them. When he wackled his fingers, a flurry of femininity left their places by the walls to line up beneath the dais. Jingle Bell started to rise as well, his bells ringing merrily, but Lady Frey grabbed the lockwood sleeve and tugged him back down. I don't know why, Rob should have just married him. That would have solved everything. Walder starts listing off his daughters. At least the trueborn ones, whose names he can remember. Rob diplomatically says the choice would have been impossible, as each one is lovelier than the last. Walder disagrees, to put it mildly, and negs his daughters for a while before finally letting Rob apologize. My ladies. Rob looked desperately uncomfortable, but he had known this moment must come, and he faced it without flinching. All men should keep their word. Kings most of all. I was pledged to marry one of you, and I broke that vow. The fault is not in you. What I did was not done to slight you, but because I loved another. No words can set it right, I know. Yet I come before you to ask forgiveness, that the phrase of the Crossing and the Starks of Winterfell may once again be friends. Walder approves of this speech. That's good. But especially the no words can set it right part. Oh, that's bad. That's very bad. And with that, the blushing bride Rosalyn arrives. Rosalind was small for her years, her skin as white as if she had just risen from a milk bath. Her face was comely, with a small chin, delicate nose, and big brown eyes. Thick chestnut hair fell in loose waves to a waist so tiny that Edmure would be able to put his hands around it. Beneath the lacy bodice of her pale blue gown, her breasts looked small, but shapely. Your Grace, the girl went to her knees, Lord Edmure, I hope I'm not a disappointment to you. Far from it, thought Catalin. her brother's face had lit up at the sight of her. You are a delight to me, my lady, Edmure said, and ever will be, I know. Catalin is less delighted. Rosalind's mother was a Rosby, and the Rosbys are just way too skinny for Catelyn's taste. She wishes Edmure was marrying a daughter of Walder's third wife, a Kraycall, because the Kraycalls have that ideal thick with 2 C's frame for making and raising babies. Edmure isn't looking at Rosalind's hips, though. He's looking at her face and notices that she's crying. For joy, she says. I promise. Pinky swear. Enough, Lord Walder broke in. You may weep and whisper after you're wed. <laughs> Benfrey, see your sister back to her chambers. She has a wedding to prepare for. And a bedding, <laughs> the sweetest part. For all. For all. His mouth moved in and out. We'll have music, such sweet music. And wine, <laughs> the red will run. And we'll put some wrongs aright. The Red will run. Seriously, Grandpa, who wrote this speech? Who's running the teleprompter at the Twins? Walder orders Lothar to prepare the guest quarters, while Rob makes sure his army crosses the river safely. Ah, uh, but wait, we almost forgot that all-important snack. Catalan asks for bread and salt. Walder agrees, brings out the food, and Catalan relaxes. Now they're safe forever and ever. Amen. Once again, Norm saved the day. Regardless, Catelyn asks Edmure to post their own guards outside their rooms, which are much nicer than Catelyn expected. Well hey, silver linings, at least he'll get to relax in style before Slaughterhouse O'Clock. Edmure is only interested in his bride. Catelyn thinks again that Rosalind might not be up for that all-important job of popping out the next Lord of Riverrun, but she doesn't want to burst Edmure's bubble, so she says Rosalind is sweet. I believe she liked me. Why was she crying? She's a maid on the eve of her wedding. A few tears are to be expected. Lysa had wept lakes the morning of her own wedding, though she had managed to be dry eyed and radiant when John Aaron swept his cream and blue cloak about her shoulders. Right, and just look how happy that marriage turned out. Edmure is just relieved that Rosalind has a prettier face than some of the other Frey ladies that Lord Walter trotted out for their inspection. But Edmure, being Edmure, can't take a victory without turning it into a defeat. So he's worried that Rosalind is too attractive and there must be something fishy going on. Ooh, Edmure, you're so close. And then he says Rosalind might be barren. Ooh, swing and a miss. Catelyn points out, hey, that makes no sense because Walder wants a Tully grandson, but she agrees that if anything, things are going too well. And so she decides to follow up on Edmure's worries. She changes and returns to the hall were a pack of Freys directed to the Maester to deal with a woman's complaint, but not before telling her that Perwin Frey, one of the nicer Freys who guarded Catelyn during her diplomatic mission to the South, won't be attending the wedding. Nothing suspicious there, moving right along. Catelyn thinks the Maester might turn out to be Frey's son number 10,000, but thankfully that's not the case. Maester Brennett reassures her that Rosalind's mother whelped a bunch of baby Freys just fine, so Rosalind should be able to do the same. Catelyn then returns to Rob, who's talking with some of his vassals. Robin Flint, Wendell Manderley, Great John Umber, his son, called Small John, even though he's bigger than literally everyone other than his dad, and oh yeah, a guy in a pale pink cloak standing by the fire. You may remember him. Lord Bolton, she said. Lady Catelyn, he replied, his voice faint. It is a pleasure to look on you again, even in such trying times. I'm sure it is, you rat fuck. Etiquette aside, Catelyn picks up on a gloomy mood in the room. Roose has brought more news of the battle at Winterfell. Turns out Clay Kerwin and Leobald Tallhart died along with valiant old Sir Roderick. But hey, there's good news too. Some of the people of Winterfell were saved... by Ramsay. Okay, maybe saved isn't the right word there, or good news, or any of that, really. Your bastard was accused of grievous crimes, Catelyn reminded him sharply, of murder, rape, and worse. Yes, Roose Bolton said, his blood is tainted, that cannot be denied. Yet he is a good fighter as cunning as he is fearless. When the Ironman cut down Sir Roderick and Leobald Tallheart soon after, it fell to Ramsay to lead the battle. And he did. He swears that he shall not sheathe his sword so long as a single Greyjoy remains in the North. Perhaps such service might atone in some small measure for whatever crimes his bastard blood has led him to commit. He shrugged. Or not. When the war is done, his grace must weigh and judge. By then I hope to have a true-born son, by Lady Walda. This is a cold man, Catelyn realized, not for the first time. Yeah, cold is one way to describe Roos. Lying liar who lies is another, different strokes. Rob wants to know what happened to Theon, and Roos answers with his wedding gift, the skin of Theon's left pinky finger. I don't think that was on the registry, but I'd really have to double-check. Catelyn asks him to put it away, even though part of her really wants it as a trophy. Maybe wear it around her neck like Davos's fingers? Regardless, Rob points out that flaying Theon won't change the fact that Brandon and Rickon are dead. Which is totally a fact, 100% true. Rob wants Theon dead, not tortured. But Roose suggests that they wait until the Ironborn sort out who's in charge. Whoever that might be, Euron, <coughs> will naturally want Theon dead to negate his claim. So the Northmen can ring concessions from the Ironborn as the price for Theon's head on a spike. Great plan! Just like Rob's plan to attack Moat Kaelin, I can't wait to watch all these plans spring into action. Speaking of Rob's strategy... Looks like there might be a snag. As Roos was crossing the Trident at the Ruby Ford, Gregor Clegane showed up and attacked from behind. In a total coincidence, Roos's own men were already safe on the northern side, and the brunt of the blow was taken by Manderly men, including Wireless Manderly, the heir to White Harbor who has once more been taken captive. Thankfully, Roos left a few hundred men behind to guard the crossing under the command of Ronald Stout and Kyle Condon, vital characters whose exploits and adventures we will totally get back to at some point, George promises. Rob is still pissed off that Robert Glover got so many of his infantrymen killed at Duskendale. Yeah, that was dumb, agrees Roos with his fingers crossed behind his back. Robert just must have been angry about losing the Glover castle to the Ironborn. No other explanation. Duskendale was done and cold. It was the battle still to come that worried Catelyn. "'How many men have you brought my son?' she asked Roose Bolton pointedly. "'His queer, colorless eyes studied her face a moment before he answered. "'Some five hundred horse and three thousand foot, my lady. "'Dreadfort men in chief, and some from Carhold. "'With the loyalty of the Carstarks so doubtful now, "'I thought it best to keep them close. "'I regret there are not more.' "'It should be enough,' said Rob. "'You will have command of my rearguard, Lord Bolton.' I mean to start for the neck as soon as my uncle has been wedded and bedded. We're going home. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 6. What do you think of it, Alex?
2: So I have a bit of a confession, which I'll say here in this safe space to the Nauticast family. Um, (laughs) I actually missed this chapter my very first time reading, in air quotes, A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I came to the series from seasons 1 and 2 of Game of Thrones, So, when I started reading the books, uh, Game and Clash, they were so similar to the show, I just started skimming. And so, by the time I got to Storm, I was looking for the next Blackwater, House of the Undying. So, when it came to the cat chapters, I was just hard skimming or skipping, as I thought Rob wouldn't have, like, an interesting or, in George's words, juicy chapter until the neck. So, when I got to the next Tyrion Small Council chapter, and they're, like, victory gloating and hashtag mission accomplishing (laughs) over um, Cat and Rob's deck. Um, I doubled back in shock and so I paged up in my PDF and read this in the Red Wedding chapter then I had to completely start over and actually read the book series um, because I was just I thought I understood where Rob and Kat were going so I suppose a bit like Rob I just completely looked past the phrase and missed the mm-hmm. biggest daggers in the dark moment and what I think is still the most defining benchmark and marquee event in the series and universe so when I Got to this with, like, better context. I did really like it, because George is doing... uh, It's like the Prestige. It's a very good job of, like, distracting you while you don't see what's happening. That's Um, right. Mm Because, like, all these details that we'll go into later, but it's just something where it's just, like, it's almost audacious of him to just play in our face with all these, like, wedding details, and, oh, I've got 300 men here, we're gonna go here, here, and here, and the whole time, like... It's it's not that the noose is around their necks, they are in the air, they just don't see it yet.
1: Yeah, no, I think you hit on something there because this chapter is very unassuming. It's only really on reread that the ominous mood and tone of it really comes into fully picture. It creates dread without telling you what is only one chapter away at this point. It pays off the promise of Walter Frey's peevishness, but it's also amusing because Walter Frey is super fun and enjoyable in this chapter. I don't know, it just feels like this chapter lives in a liminal space in between all the adventures we had previous in A Song of Ice and Fire and the tragedy that's coming up in the next chapter, but maybe I'm just pre-grieving like Roman Roy on Succession.
0: (laughs) I think pre-grieving is a perfect summary, at least on reread, when you're just, you're holding on for what's coming next. *Catalan 6 is the kind of chapter that I think would be forgettable in lesser hands because yeah, it has a very clear structural function. It's the red carpet for the Red Wedding, the penultimate Catalan chapter in which George sets up everything he needs for the main event so Catalan 7, her very last POV chapter, can dedicate itself purely to the sights, sounds, and even smells of doom. But, in order to preserve the shock of what's about to happen, George has to pretend like Catalan 6 is transitioning us to nothing worse or more important than an awkward dinner party. So basically, he had to write two chapters at the same time and kind of interweave them as one, which, yeah, it's an incredible accomplishment. And as you say, you can see that just in the many different tones at work in this chapter. It's very tense, but it's also very funny, with Catalin caught in between trying to navigate the two. As with the Red Wedding itself, when we get to it next time, the highest compliment I can pay this chapter is that it still works. Even when you know what's coming, George never tips
1: his hand completely. Endless susurrus. Endless susurrus. I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear me say this, but this stretch of material is some of George's best prose, and I think the gravity of these events puts some extra oomph in his pen. He, of course, loves to submerge us in imagery, in the sensory, and that's how he kicks off this chapter. The second word is literally heard, and the lines that follow have an onomatopoetic quality to them. Endless susurrus has that soft sound to reflect the meaning of the word susurrus, to whisper then follows the growling like a great beast, hard GR sounds to imitate the actual rumble of the river. It's four-meeting function, the words chosen precisely to convey meaning not through just semantics, but also syntax. The author is calling his shot, setting up the staggering series of chapters that are about to come. The growling river is also a bit of a runner, as we highlighted the last time when we discussed Aria's two chapters bookending this one the river first growling like a dog and then like a lion. The river is also described as boiling and twice as wide, reflective of both enmity and the distance that separates House Stark and House Frey, a distance that won't be overcome. The growling river is not the only coherence with the surrounding chapters. Catelyn's first thoughts are of the journey south in A Game of Thrones and the first crossing at the Twins. Retreading old ground and taking stock of the adventure thus far has been a big part of all these Jon, Sam, Arya, Jamie, and especially cat chapters of the second act of the Storm of Swords as we build to the Red Wedding, the climax of Act 1 of A Song of Ice and Fire. One difference from Rob's journey south though, he was just acting Lord Stark then, with his father in a black cell and no crown on his head. The Rob that returns now is fully crowned, and wrapped in all the trappings of power imaginable a projection of authority, especially at the preliminary stage of retaking his northern kingdom. And also perhaps maybe to give Edmir's wedding a royal flavor that Walder was deprived of when Rob married Jane. While Rob may have donned his crown for the occasion, he seems a little less concerned with making sure guest right is affirmed. It does scream at you, doesn't it? Kat being so insistent on guaranteeing guest right here. Like, what was she thinking was possible? If she suspected out-and-out murder, she would have counseled Rob as such. But alas, it doesn't really matter in the end. While Ned Stark's demise rested on the norms of society proving to be incapably weak, Rob and Catelyn are now in a Westeros where all the norms will have disintegrated as men are murdered at their supper.
0: Yeah, the river makes for a great organizing principle here, as it has throughout the build-up to the Red Wedding. You've been talking so well about that. The various forks of the Trident have made for logistical obstacles in both Arya and Catelyn chapters thanks to the rain, that that very literal storm of swords. But the river was always eventually going to be an obstacle even if the sky was clear and the sun was shining, because the Freys have made it so. The whole reason they built their castles where they did, the whole reason they built two castles instead of one, was to control this crossing. That's how they made their money, and that's become the core of their self-image as a family. We saw that with those those Frey brats at Winterfell, Little Walder and Big Walder, with their Lord of the Crossing game. But even though their crossing has made House Frey wealthy and powerful, it hasn't brought them prestige. And that's what pisses off Lord Walder so much. He's always felt disrespected by the Tullys, looked down on. You can't separate his anger about Rob breaking his marriage pact from that pattern. If Walder had generally gotten along with the Tullys up until now, maybe he wouldn't have reacted so violently. But now Rob's betrayal is part of a narrative. Walder can point to that and say, See? The new Tully is just like his ancestors. He can't be trusted, he'll never take us seriously, we have to stop this cycle by any means necessary. He leveraged his crossing to get that marriage pact out of Rob, taking advantage of Rob's desperation to get to Riverrun ASAP. Now he's used to that same geographical position as a trap, forcing Rob to come to the table if he wants any hope of returning to Winterfell. Like you say, we've come full circle with Catelyn's thoughts providing the connective tissue. Rob's campaign began here, in a sense, and now it ends here. He needed the phrase to get south in Book 1, and now he needs them to get back north in Book 3. It feels like fate. Like Rob doomed himself the last time he was here, before he ever fought and won a battle. Sure, chance and choice played their roles as they always do, but the way George writes it here makes it feel inevitable. Catelyn thinking about how they need the phrase more than ever, how they can't cross the river without them. The phrase are a ferryman escorting them all to death, so the river is not only a logistical obstacle to be leveraged for political advantage; it's not only an embodiment of Walder's resentment and rage breaking the surface; it's an avatar of destiny, a mouth waiting to swallow them all.
2: I do agree this is the climax of uh, Act One of *A Song of Ice and Fire*, and so on reread for the initiated, these slow, depressing, grueling chapters they do take on their own powerful uh, current, like the river's trade in itself. And we see throughout, um, throughout the entire story how much these rivers and crossings impact the plot of the stories by making ways passable or not. A number of key victories or losses depends on what side you're fighting for, um, happen along these rivers, um, from Robert defeating Rhaegar to more recently Edmir repelling Tywin.
1: I think it's also just part of the metaphor, like, all rivers lead to this moment. It feels like this is just kind of an avalanche, like, this is the natural endpoint of all these kind of plot threads and little tributaries coming together here at the climax. Let's move on to the phrase themselves. One of our analogs for a favorite real-world inbred royal family, the Habsburgs. As with all the historical ideas in George's work, history is remixed, so no one person or event or family maps perfectly onto his story. For example, Robert Baratheon has shades of both Henry V of England and Edward IV, both known for their outstanding military campaigns and the latter for drinking and whoring himself to an early grave. But Edward IV also bears some resemblance to Rob Stark, namely in that his father, Richard of York, was beheaded before Edward rose up to eventually win the crown during the Wars of the Roses. And that too is kinda neat, as Robert and Rob play off some of the same historical characters when in our narrative, the young wolf is named after the older stag. The Habsburgs, like many dukes and counts of their age, first became prominent during the 11th century because their castle in Switzerland was near a ford of the R River, a major tributary of the Rhine, and thus they were able to exact tolls from travelers and merchants making their ways through Central Europe, pretty similar to how House Frey got its start like Emmett just said. Habsburg rule grew over the centuries to become the power behind the Holy Roman Empire in the late Middle Ages and especially into the early modern period mostly on the backs of marriages to other houses and nobility across Europe. This would allow them to bring in various German, Czech, Hungarian, and Spanish kingdoms under their thumb. The Freys have done something similar, very much on the backs of Walder Frey's viral lifestyle, marrying off his kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and bastards to various houses, namely in the Riverlands but also all over, and it has helped them become more powerful, even if it leads to a Byzantine web of allegiances, perhaps best illustrated by Cleo's Frey in the early Jaime chapters, but we will really see the Frey entanglement with Lannisters and Bolton's and Feast and Dance respectively. And that strategy should be in the back of our mind here, because Walder still is working on this noble matrimonial project. That's what he wanted out of the original matches for Rob and Arya, and now as peeved he has to settle for a Tully. Greeting Catlin is Ryman Frey, Walder's grandson and heir to the twins following the death of Stevron at Oxcross. In Catlin 2, Rob mentioned that he perhaps could have made some compromise with Stevron over the Jane situation, but not with Ryman. As Cat describes him here, he's fleshy, broad, and stupid. He'll be a sweaty mess at the Red Wedding before marching in to begin the massacre. He'll also lay siege to Riverrun, which we'll discuss more when we get to A Feast for Crows. Coming with Ryman are his three sons, Edwin, Blackwalder, and Peter Pimple. Edwin is the oldest, the constipated-looking one, and his biggest contribution to the story might be getting slapped by Catelyn in the Red Wedding chapter itself. The youngest is Peter Pimple, who Merit Frey will be on a fetch quest to retrieve retrieve in the book's epilogue. Blackwalder, though, is the most important of the trio, who we discussed a bit back when he and Lothar parlayed at Riverrun over Edmure's hand. We know he's a bad dude that loves to fight, has probably bedded his brother's wives, and maybe even some of his cousins. As it stands, he's third in line for the twins following the death of his father in a feast for crows, something his older brother Edwin thinks Walder had a hand in. Greywind, like us, is not happy about seeing so many frays, growling so loudly the cat mistakes it for the river itself. But it's not just bark, Greywind snaps and leaps at the phrase, sensing the danger here. He'll later grow wild on the portcullis too, at which point Rob will have Reynold Westerling see him off, a deft move to hide both Wolf and Westerling from Walder Frey, though arguably the beginning of Rob's capitulation to Walder on the Wolf issue. The Freys are also quick to point out that Jane is not there with Rob. Except they don't say Jane. They refer to her as the woman the first of many petty insults, but also in line with George's own writing techniques. He loves playing around with names and loss of names, especially in feast stands, and by not naming Jane here, the phrase are communicating exactly what they think of her. The other petty insult might be Lord Walder himself not joining the welcome party, given the fealty owed to his king and liege lord. This reminds me of the lackluster rabble of escorts led by Tyrion who met Prince Oberyn outside of King's Landing back in Tyrion V. We are just on the other side of the exchange this time. And again, we've been primed for this. The way George plays his cards has been on repeating the peevishness and pettiness of Walder Frey, and we've been warned that he'd hit Rob with a thousand slights and won.
0: You know, people often compare the story of the phrase to the, the rat cook legend from the Night Fort, especially after uh, Wyman Manderley gets involved. But they have even more in common with rat kings, which is when you mentioned entanglement. I was just thinking of that when it's when a bunch of rats get their tails all stuck together and intertwine like they're just one big being. They're just a, a rat Voltron. That's the phrase. All of these rats stuck together, all these shitty little personalities, all these schemers and murderers and drunks. Lord Walder has the most outsized personality of the bunch, of course, but George clearly has a lot of fun coming up with the other phrase. Catalan's description of Ryman certainly lines up with what we see and hear of him later. In the epilogue, Merritt calls him thick-witted, stubborn, and greedy. So he's both dumb and mean. It's a winning combination. As Jamie thinks in A Feast for Crows when he briefly has to put up with Ryman, if this loser ever actually inherits the twins, the phrase are done. He doesn't, of course. Stoneheart hangs his sorry ass on his way back from Riverrun. And so then we have to turn to his kids, who as Merritt thinks are even worse than Ryman, in large part just because they're smarter. Edmure says that Edwin Frey has a constipated look, which just about sums him up perfectly. He has a stick up his ass at all times. Arrogant even when he observes protocols, which he eventually does here. Edmure goes on to call Black Walder a nasty bit of business, which we already know from Rob saying that Blackwalder offered to murder Jane in order to free up Rob to marry a Frey. Edwin fights with words, Blackwalder with steel. They're one of those those opposite paired couples that define the phrase. We see that with Big Walder and Little Walder. We see it with uh, Hosteen and Anus Frey up in Winterfell in a Dance with Dragons. It's a common thing with the phrase. And yeah, I don't think Black Walder actually had anything to do with Ryman's death. I think that was just Stoneheart being Stoneheart. Edwin's paranoia is just that paranoia, and it's revealing in terms of how they think about each other. And then there's the third son, Peter Pimple, as they call him, one of the hapless Patsies among the phrase, like uh, his cousin Merritt, our epilogue POV. He's not involved in any master plan to take over the twins, he doesn't have any scores to settle with his relatives, he's just meat for the machine. We see that here when his horse throws him off after Grey Wind attacks. And this is a great example of how George sets up what's about to happen, in plain sight, while providing just enough distraction and plausible deniability to fool the first-time reader. On one hand, Grey Wind is clearly sensing that the Freys have bad intentions— the direwolves not only have animal instincts, they're spiritual creatures on some level. They can tap into what's being hidden. On the other hand, the way this scene is staged, Rob ends up looking like the aggressor here, as Lord Walder will say inside. Black Walter draws his sword, but only to admonish Rob for setting his wolf loose. The absolute fucking gall of these guys to wave their fingers and tut-tut the people they're about to mass murder at the dinner table. So Rob ignores the warning, because he's too busy trying to placate the phrase— people who absolutely cannot be placated at this point. The phrase are disappointed not to see Jane. On first read, you might think Walter just wanted to make fun of her along with Rob. On reread, though, you can tell it's, it's practically guaranteed that the plan was to kill her, too. One subtle note that stood out to me on reread, after Peter loses his horse, Rob very gallantly offers his own, but Peter glances at his father and then refuses. Because you can't make any new connections to the Starks, don't want to look weak, don't want to look like you owe them anything, put yourself in close proximity before the big event. It's all being stage managed, as we see when our heroes finally get inside out of the rain.
2: Yeah, House Frey, to me, they become like the transition series of villains as the story is getting ready to move the initial Stark v. Lannister conflict a little bit to the back burner. We're still as readers very invested in the Stark cause. Um, but after the Red Weddings, the Stark, the Starks lose a lot, uh, go figure. Um, but then also mm-hmm. the Lannisters end up losing some key figures on their warfront by the books, by later portions of the book. So as we move into feast dance, House Frey just starts supplying a lot of the villains and antagonists and, um, kind of just like the team bad guys, uh, going forward.
1: Yeah. Power abhors a vacuum and there's just so many freys. It's natural that they'd start filling yeah. it. So then we get to the chapter's main event, the headliner, the one, the only, Walder Frey.
2: Woo! Boo!
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I I hate to be the worst person ever, or second worst, next to Lord Walder, (laughs) but I gotta say, the Lord of the Crossing rocks in this chapter. Yeah, yeah, he's awful, and he's gonna lead the greatest gut punch in modern fantasy, but he's just... A lot of fun. His (laughs) preening mannerisms, his petty jibes, his lecherous attitude. It's all great. With or without David Bradley's wonderful performance, the character on page still stands perfectly crystallized. It reminds me of how we discussed Oberyn back in Tyrion Five. Walder Frey is one of those fully formed characters in George's mind. He knows exactly what Walder needs to be and do because he only gets one appearance prior to these Red Wedding chapters, yet he needs to be at full potency for this big set piece to work. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I agree. The Red Wedding, it would not be the unique memorable phenomenon that it is without everybody's least favorite lord at the center of it all. I've been saying throughout the build up to these chapters that George's smartest move here is that he doesn't pretend that Walder is a nice guy. I think that would have been the temptation in order to hide what's coming from the reader, but it would have been a step too far if Walder was suddenly all smiles and compliments, it would have immediately given the game away to the reader, and it also would have made Rob and Catelyn look dumber than they actually are. Instead, what George does is to make us think that Walder is just an insult comic. He's in this for the slights, as Catelyn says. He doesn't like Rob, obviously not, he doesn't like anybody— but maybe all he wants out of this is the thrill of mocking the king in the north to his face. Just a very petty version of revenge. And the first-time reader generally buys that because of how perfectly Walder is written. How every word he says is just the most obnoxious thing imaginable. He doesn't come off like a devious mastermind. He comes off like a bully. One who thrives on the discomfort of others. And now to be fair, Walder really isn't the mastermind here. Tywin is the prime mover, the, the team manager who brought everyone together. And as we learn in the epilogue, Walder left all the actual logistical details to Roose Bolton, along with his son and steward Lothar. Walder is basically in the audience for The Red Wedding. It's a show put on for him to make him happy while he roasts everyone, like if a a Statlor and Waldorf from The Muppets were melted (laughs) melted down into one cantankerous old fucker.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love that imagery. One of our favorite angles on the NADA cast podcast, is how much of the conflict is driven by the personal and the political, and the dissonance that occurs when those two clash. And that is because in this sort of feudal, monarchic society, the politics are personal, something Patrick Wyman talks about on his podcast Tides of History. All power, authority, and legitimacy flows from the person at the top, be it a king, or a hand, or a warden. There is no concept of a nation, Sure, someone may identify as a northerner or a riverlander, but in the end, they are vassals of Starks and Tullys, subjects of kings on the Iron Throne. When you dig into medieval history, a lot of the conflicts between neighboring duchies and kingdoms often come down to the interpersonal relationships between the sovereigns. The entire northern kingdom in Westeros mobilized essentially because Rob could not suffer his father being imprisoned by Lannisters and now the Northern Kingdom is going to come crashing down because a mid-major lord in the Riverlands is big mad that a 16-year-old went back on his word. Yeah, there's a million other factors here, mostly Tywin Lannister, but he too is likely acting out of a personal desire for retribution on the little shit who thoroughly whipped his ass on the battlefield. George's description of Walder Frey sings here. Something of a vulture, more of a weasel, the long pink neck and saggy skin, the toothless grin. The throne he sits on is my favorite flourish, looking like a small child in a giant chair of black oak fashioned after the twin towers of Frey. It represents both the very little man that lives between those two towers, and also speaks to his outsized ambitions, a small man playing a big game, one we hope and expect to catch up with Lord Walder when winter comes.
0: Yeah, terrific reintroduction of a character who, like you said, we've only seen once before, and that was two books ago. I love the animal comparisons, the vulture, the weasel. Could have gone with the turkey, too, with that long neck. Just replace all of Walder's dialogue with gobble-gobble. Get the point across. But turkeys don't really have any negative connotations. People love turkeys. Ben Franklin wanted it to be our national bird, and he was right. George (laughs) goes with the weasel and the vulture because he knows it'll make the reader, or most readers anyway, recoil. Weasels are associated with betrayal and cowardice, you know, weaseling out of something. And vultures, of course, are nature's most notorious scavengers. It's like the phrase circling like vultures above the Starks as they die. It almost literally happens. Ryman and Black Walder circle behind Catelyn towards the end of the Red Wedding. Even more significant, though, is the comparison to childhood. That Walder is described as a grotesque child in his overlarge throne, and he sucks at the air like a baby at their mother's breast. Old age is the second childhood, as the saying goes. I remember that Seinfeld bit about how your first birthday and your last birthday are basically the same, because in both cases, you're just sitting there, helplessly, while the people in their prime run the show. Walder is the worst of both worlds. He has the simmering resentment of old age, combined with the juvenile selfishness of childhood. Like, imagine your most obnoxious older relative. Now imagine your most annoying younger relative. Okay, now imagine they're the same person. Funnily enough, we actually met Walder as a toddler in the Mystery Night, the third Duncan Egg story, and he was a snot-nosed little brat back then, too. Nothing has changed. The younger Walders we met at Winterfell, Big and Little Walder, are not only named in Lord Walder's honor, they're made in his image. Like you say, his throne is a visual representation of his power as Lord of the Crossing, and it's also a reminder, once again, of the game Lord of the Crossing. That game runs on the idea that your oaths are binding, unless you say mayhaps. And one of the most chilling parts of the Red Wedding on Reread is realizing how Walder is sneaking mayhaps into his dialogue. He does it three times, saying that mayhaps Rob owes his daughter an apology, mayhaps we should have a sausage as part of the guest rights ceremony, and most importantly, he says that when Rob made that crossing and swore that oath, he never said mayhaps. Walder is boiling down the entire complex social network of oaths and obligations, to the arbitrary rules of a children's game, the kind you make up as you go along. And that's part of what makes The Red Wedding such an unsettling shock to the system. It's an adult decision running on childish logic, a ruthless act of mass murder, carried out by someone who thinks they can get away with it because they have their fingers crossed behind their back.
2: Yeah, Kat's plots in the story, they take her through several courts and official proceedings that should be ran with consistency and competence, but at the end, they end up exposing just how prone these systems are to fail when people at their childishness get the better of them. From early in Book 1, where Rob draws his sword in Winterfell just amongst him, Cat and Maester Lewin, um, to the Pomp and Kangaroo circumstances in the Eyrie, to the Brathian brothers parley outside of Storm's End, and now here in the Twins. Cat is always perpendicular to how these events should go, because there's an established political decorum and order of operations for these things. But the personal motivations of the people at the top make it impossible for Cat to navigate easily. And for us, as the readers alongside Cat, we're both seeing how things should work if all things were equal, and we're seeing how Westeros is falling apart because things aren't working the way they should.
1: Most of the Frey flock is also in attendance, with the Eighth Lady Frey, Joyeuse, and Steveron's son Aegon, quote-unquote, Jingle Bell Frey, most prominently featured. The latter, of course, is a sad tale, a laquid in the very image of Lord Walder, ordained as a king and a fool, which Catelyn parses to be one of Walder's many intended insults. We'll have a chance to talk about him again at the Red Wedding, and even in the A of Swords epilogue, but he's a perfect exemplar of the type of innocent lives lost when the High Lords play the Game of Thrones, even when Jingle Bell himself is noble-born. Society should be taking care of people like this, not using them as metaphorical insults or putting them in mortal peril. I don't really know how much stock to put into Jingle Bell's actual name, Aegon, other than it appears anyone can wear that name, which will of course be a big part of the Young Grift storyline in A Dance with Dragons.
0: It makes me think of what Stannis says about Lyanna Mormont in A Dance with Dragons. Oh, I know how the game is played. She was named after the late Lyanna Stark in order to curry favor with her brother Ned, then the Lord of Winterfell. Naming your kid after a powerful person, or someone beloved by a powerful person, is a political signal. A declaration that, hey, you should maybe consider me to be part of your family. It can run the other way, of course. Remember how pissed off Cersei was at the idea of the Stokeworths naming Lawless's baby after Tywin? So, naturally, Bronn named him after Tyrion instead. (laughs) George writes that Aegon Jingle Bell is 50, so he was born during the reign of Aegon V Targaryen, a.k.a. Egg. Well, no doubt Walder and Stevron named the kid that in order to kiss up to the Targs, who are now out of power, making the point moot. It's like an in-universe example of people naming their kids Khaleesi before Season 8. <laughs> but even before Robert's Rebellion made Aegon a dead letter as a baby name, this Aegon had already failed in his grandfather's eyes. Lord Walder treated Aegon's mental illness like an embarrassment. You were supposed to be a great warrior or a cunning politician, so the Targaryens would be flattered I borrowed their name for you. So, as Catelyn thinks, Walter always hid Aegon away instead. Which, hey, that's not too far off from Catelyn herself, preventing Jon from joining the Trueborn Starks for dinner when they were hosting the royal family near the start of the story. You can't be there, you'll embarrass us. The Game of Thrones, and politics in general, is about performance. Playing the part of people who ought to be in charge, because if people believe you're in charge than you are. Aegon disrupts that image, and nothing matters more to Lord Walder, who does not give a damn about his family members as individual people. Only now does Aegon get to join the group photo, and only because he makes for a convenient prop with which to lash out at Rob. Heartless behavior on Walder's part, even before he responds to Catelyn threatening Aegon's life with a shrug, Ah, eh, he's only a grandson, and he was never much use. Like use is what matters for a human life. Elsewhere in the story and the ancillary materials, George plays with the Shakespearean idea of the fool as the, as the clever truth-teller in court, as well as the popular image of the fool as a lecher always hitting on the court, ladies. Mushroom is basically both of those at the same time. Here, though, the image of the fool is a blunt force expression of cruelty and contempt. The king as a fool, and the fool as a subhuman. I had forgotten until this read that Walder specifically says Egon has less wits than a Cranog man, because, you know, he isn't being unpleasant enough here. He's got a slip in a little bigotry. Again, we see where the young Walders got their ideas about the frog eaters of the neck. Keep in mind that the Cranog men are also sworn vassals of the king in the north, ever since the Reed siblings arrived at Winterfell. So Walder is openly insulting Rob's other bannermen, a sign of the political difficulties Rob might have faced keeping his coalition together in the long run. But also another hint that Walder no longer
1: respects Rob's rule. Lord Walder's chattering about kneeling in crowns is once again George threading the needle on nailing Walder Frey's peevishness without giving the game away. In retrospect, Walder not kneeling may be less about his age, and more the fact that he doesn't recognize Rob as his king, any longer at least. Likewise, his job at Rob's bronze crown implies Rob is a lesser king, all the while centering the crown, which will be in Lady Stoneheart's hands soon enough.
0: Genuflect, show some respect down on one knee. Yeah, it's easy to forget, like you were saying earlier, that Rob wasn't even a king yet the last time he passed through the Twins. He wasn't even Lord of Winterfell because Ned was still alive, albeit imprisoned under the Red Keep. Walter wasn't accepting Rob as his overlord necessarily when they made that marriage pact. It was a military alliance between relative equals. Only now does the test of loyalty really come. And only now does Walder, the late Lord Frey, deliberately fail that test, refusing to bend the knee to rob. But I think you're right that George is still threading the needle here, because even Walder's most brazen acts of defiance are still childish. Like if he doesn't bend the knee, oh then none of what happens next counts as betrayal. And Walder bragging about his big old dick is also just, just painfully mature. Do you think he calls his balls the twins? Do you think he calls Big Walder and the Twins? <laughs> big Wally, maybe? I'm going with that. More revealing is his mockery of Rob's crown, a poor king who crowns himself with bronze. Rob says that bronze and iron are stronger than gold and silver, which, you know, yeah, all all that is gold does not glitter, and inner strength matters more than surface appeal. You can you can see the uh the themes there. And while Walder was right that this strength didn't help the old-school kings of winter resist the Dragon Lords when they came to conquer Westeros, like I said in the synopsis, it's not like gold and silver crowns would have helped there either. That kind of fancy performative wealth is the stock and trade of the southern knights who burned by the thousands in the Field of Fire. Neither gold nor iron was enough to win the day, because Aegon and his sisters changed the game. Ironically, it was Torrin Stark's willingness to take off that bronze iron crown— That wound up sparing his people's lives. I think Walder has a point that looking fancy is part of the job of being king. You know, it's the trappings of power. But come on, Rob could have walked in here with a train of peacock feathers and Walder would have found a problem with it because it's really a question of legitimacy that he's saying your crown is no more meaningful than on Jingle Bells.
1: All right, I have to get one of my complaints out here. The person who's sent to retrieve Rosalind for Edmere's inspection is named Benfrey Frey, with Frey literally in his first name, spelled B-E-N-F-R-E-W-Y. I mean, we already have 987 Walders running around, but now there's two Freys in a single phrase name. Uh, Get the fuck out of here, George.
0: I know, right? When I was doing the synopsis, I had to go back and check, like, Now, that must have been Ben Fred, right? That's a name in this universe. No no one would name a kid Ben Free Frey. Of all of Walder's many crimes, clearly. Clearly, that's number one.
1: (laughs) Uh, But while Rosalind is busy being fetched, Lord Walder needles King Rob over Jane, who is not in attendance, but who must be incredibly fair to look upon as Joy Yu stammers out. Catelyn notes how Rob's icy coolness is very much like Ned's, very much like the Starks of Winterfell.
0: It's interesting. It seems to have gotten. He seems to have gotten better at that since he got crowned. Like if you go back to the start of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn's first chapter there, when Rob has just been crowned at River Run, and he's uh, negotiating with, from a position of power with Cleo's Frey, and Catelyn thought that Rob's voice was not quite as icy as Ned's yet. So it's it's getting there just just in time for Rob to join Dad in the grave. You just managed to live up to his image, just in time.
1: Our hearts all grow colder as we age, I can attest to that.
0: Until <laughs> they become stone.
1: <laughs> Rob offers his apologies to the ladies and girls of House Frey, who Walder trots out like cattle at an auction. This is very much how Walder Frey and, honestly, most of the noble men in Westeros view women. A flurry of femininity at the whims of an old man's waggling fingers. He can't even be bothered to remember half their names, despite Walda being a good 40% of them. There are some fun names in the bunch, though. Arwen invokes Lord of the Rings, Cersei of course relevant to our own story, called the quote-unquote Little Bee, which makes for a fun play on Cersei Lannister viewing herself as the Queen Bee. Rob plays the humbled kink here, saying it would have been an impossible choice to pick a Lady of House Frey, which of course opens him up to even more insults from Lord Walder about who really has the worst vision. Even after the apology, the girls shuffle around nervously, knowing that all cues come from the Lord of the Crossing. Lord Frey, of course, has been used with no words can set it right phrasing because, well, Emmett went over this already. He wants Rob to dance with all his daughters at the wedding feast, perhaps so the story can be the king was forced to dance with each of his family before being murdered, just another humiliation to stack on top of Rob Stark. Roslyn arrives, and I hate to be too hard on Catelyn moments before her doom, but she too invokes the woman-as-cattle ideology. She emphasizes her physical robustness, or Rosalind's lack thereof, worrying about the Rosby stock that she comes from. This feels like a continuation of the Jon inheritance chat from last chapter, a debate Catelyn resoundingly lost. After perhaps failing at securing the Stark lineage, her focus here is now on the future of her own house, House Tully, and whether Roslyn can help Edmure secure their own familial line. This is of course something Nauticast has talked about in all of Catelyn's chapters, her working within the role of femininity in Westerosi patriarchy towards ends that align with said patriarchy, namely the focus on issue and inheritance. That's not to say Catelyn and Lord Walder are equally bad or misogynist, but that we have to understand patriarchy doesn't manifest itself only via men. People of marginalized genders also get swept away and made complicit in these systems of hierarchy and violence, even if they ostensibly oppose them on some level.
2: That's one of the elements that I enjoy about Kat's place in this series. She does uh, show and tell us the social mores of Westeros, even as they impede and constrain her. And as a big cat fan and knowing all of my friends that are also very cat fans, we are far more progressive and liberal than cat is, who isn't going <laughs> to say like, you know, isn't, is conservative probably like the nicest way to say that. But, um, like I don't think cat would be like overly insulted or diminished if you said that she was just Ned's wife or Robin company's mom. Um, cause there, cause we do see there's more to her than that, but. You see how she thinks that there is this ladder of how people work, how society work. And I, I do think that for most places, she would say that a, a female is more of a supporting uh, role.
0: Really well said. I think it's it's an interesting relationship that readers have to her character in that way. And I think that really impacts how we look at an event like the Red Wedding. I think most of the Red Wedding is, of course, about how power is working itself out in kind of big picture, political terms, military terms. But right here, we see it through the lens of gender. After all, this is at least Walder's stated primary motivation, getting revenge on Rob for not marrying one of his daughters or granddaughters. With the collective pride of House Frey was wounded, or at least that's what Walder told his family, according to Merritt in the epilogue. And you can easily imagine Walder justifying this in chivalric terms, right? Like the, the women of my family were insulted, and now I have to defend their honor. But look at how he talks about them. Look at how he talks to them. He refers to Amy as a broken in and refers to her dead husband as an oaf. And like Manu said, he forgets their names despite how many Waldas there are. It reminds me of the, the wedding scene in Goodfellas when they're going around introducing Karen to everyone. And she's like, they're all named Pete and Paul. This is Petey. This is Polly. <laughs> that's the twins. And he still can't keep it straight. Worst of all is when Walder tells the daughter of one of his grandbastards, this, this cute little squeaky-voiced four-year-old, I'm, I'm called Walder, great-grandpapa, tells her to sit down because Rob has no interest in base stock. The reader knows that Rob loved John and named him his heir despite his bastardy, but Walter is talking about these women like they're animals, or like they're his slaves, probably a little both from his perspective. They're just props. They're bargaining chips. They're pawns in the Game of Thrones. Ironically, Rob is the one who speaks with genuine chivalry to them, despite being the one who broke his vows to them. So even as Walder pays lip service to the language of romance, talking about how Rob dancing with his daughter is what it would please an old man's heart, it's clear that he sees only, as he says, a pretty face and a nice firm pair of teats. He thinks Rob is the same, but we know Rob just slept with Jane primarily to distract himself from his grief for Bran and Rickon because he actually feels the family bonds that Walder only pretends to. Walter isn't acting to defend the honor of his daughters and granddaughters, because he's the one treating them dishonorably. He's acting to defend his own injured pride, full stop. And that pride is rooted in the dick he's so delighted still works. And yes, yeah, somewhere in between lies Catelyn. I think George does a great job of writing her perspective in terms of gender. I think it's a... I think it's I think the reason people respond to it who wouldn't share her politics or worldview is because it's just really realistic and recognizable that I think I know a lot of women like Catalan. I know conservative women who who believe that gender norms benefit society on the whole, even as they're restrained by it personally. I mean, these are the very norms that made Edmure the heir to Riverrun, despite Catalan being born first and being manifestly better suited for it. These are the norms that made it okay for Ned to father a bastard, but wouldn't have permitted the same leeway for Catalan. These are the norms that led her father Hoster to treat her sister Lysa like, well, like stock, like breeding stock, as Catelyn has recently discovered regarding Tansy. But Catelyn doesn't question them, because these norms uphold the propagation of family within the feudal power structure. And she believes, above all, in the importance of family. Just look at her house words, family, duty, honor. There is no outside the system for Catelyn. She saw Brienne as an unfortunate outcast. She thought, oh, is, is there no creature on Earth so so pitiful as an ugly woman? And, like, she wasn't being cruel. She wasn't mocking, like, Walder or the assholes down in Renly's camp. She felt bad for Brienne. But Catalan never took the next step of questioning that conventional wisdom. Why does it matter to me that Brienne is ugly? Why have we set things up so that's bad for her? What if that doesn't matter at all? So while Catelyn is not as cruel as Walter, she still plays into that logic, that the worth of a woman is determined by her ability to bear and raise children. It ties back into her last chapter about how the Mormons talked about liness that if you don't have wide hips and big tits, what good are you? And that was from women who run their own island, and they're still talking like that.
1: So Edmure is, of course, delighted by Rosalind. His biggest fear was, Wife not hot, and that fear has been allayed, which builds perfectly on this chapter of femininity we just had. His only concern is her tears, which Rosalind chalks up to joy at being wed, but based on Callan's next chapter, she's most likely terrified of what's about to happen. Crying, especially in the Western Anglo tradition, is often a gendered action, reserved for women and the weak, which are often the same under patriarchal lenses. Cersei talks about tears being a woman's weapon, but here the phrase can cynically wield it as a shield. Of course she's crying, a maid on the verge of her wedding night, it's all a girl's dreams about, and it's emotionally overwhelming. It's just good enough cover, but Walder Frey has the wherewithal to make sure to shoo Rosalind off before she can really give the game away. Though Walder nearly does that himself, not being able to contain himself as he says the bedding is going to be the sweetest part of all, the wine will run red, and put in wrongs to right. It's been well over a decade since I first read this book, so I can say I'm mostly over my red wedding trauma, and as such, I can really enjoy the flavor with which Walder Frey is seasoned. Like I said, he's a fully formed thought in George's mind, and it's kind of fun watching the lecherous old asshole amuse himself.
0: I do on rewrit I just I love the bit with Rosalind crying like it's so well done because because okay so you you got the You've got the level at which she's pretending that she's crying out of joy at marrying Edmure. And even the first-time reader knows, okay, that's bullshit. That's just something you say. That's just something you pretend to get through a scene like this. And then you've got, like, the layer beneath that. What you think is the situation is just, oh, she's kind of scared of getting married. She's scared of having sex. Because a, a wedding and a marriage, and especially in this kind of society, can just be a trauma, can be a nightmare. And can also just... Be that way generally even in a better society mm. and then you got the reality underneath that the reason she's crying is because no her wedding is going to be unusually bad even by westerosi standards but george fools you so beautifully into thinking she's crying for normal reasons which is so fucked up in itself like that uh, there was a normally good reason to cry at your wedding that's again the kind of the the background of gender dynamics we're talking about here and yeah i love how just walter just keeps getting closer to saying out loud like, when he says the red will run, like, dude, I know you could technically be talking about wine, but that is so <laughs> close to saying it out loud. Like, just imagine being one of the other phrase in the room when he says that. Imagine being like Lothar who's put all the planning, logistical work into pulling this off, and you're so close. All you have to do is not give away the game in the last possible minute. And then you have to just stand there poker-faced and sweating while your senile sex pest dad taunts the people you're going to kill about how you're going to kill them. Again, Walder is the host, it's impossible to do this without him, but he is very much not the mastermind. He almost ruins this.
1: Yeah, it's like what you said with the whole mayhaps thing. Walder may just be making little in-jokes to himself, but it strikes me that he leans on an old Frey custom, or a child's game as you said, right before he's going to tear down every norm and societal moray imaginable. Which gets us to the bread and salt, which Catelyn thinks will keep them safe. Walder is no dummy. His, of course, of course, lets us know he is more than willing to play along. He says the words of welcome, and even has the food and drink ready to go at the clap of his hands. The breakdown of societal structure in Westeros, as shown through the Red Wedding, will be a topic we take on in our main Red Wedding episode, but it really starts here. At the point where Walder has decided to murder people at his dinner table, falsely performing guest right theatrics is Noah hair off Walder Frey's balding head. We started to see the breaking down of norms way back in A Game of Thrones, with Eddard, with Eddard Stark leaning on them to his doom, hoping the royal words of Robert Baratheon would help see through a pending succession crisis. It did not, the norms were literally <laughs> torn up, and madness reigned in the newly crowned King Joffrey, killing all of Eddard's household under the king's roof, and later Ned himself as public spectacle. This plunged the entire realm into war, fracturing it, and in those fractures, brutality and violence held sway. This is what we saw in A Clash of Kings, most specifically Arya's journey through the Riverlands that was under the hegemonic violence of Gregor Clegane and Tywin Lannister. But it's also evident in the Ironborn Invasion of the North, one of the most useless and ill-conceived plans executed solely because Balon Greyjoy is a petty and stupid man. (laughs) And that... Piece of the story is centered by Theon Greyjoy, who is breaking every real human connection he has built up ever since he was a 10-year-old boy. The complete dissolution of people's obligations to each other is coupled with the confused moral picture that takes shape for the reader in A Storm of Swords. They lay with lions is literally a fucking signpost early on that there is no good or righteous side here. The Northmen are raping and murdering too and flaying, as appears to be happening with Theon. In Sam 2, we saw hunger and desperation break the chains that bind, both in terms of the Night's Watch command structure, but also just the links between one person to another. Just like we will see at the Red Wedding, violence and death break out at the dinner table, guest right completely shattered. No mistake that Sam 2 takes place at Craster's Keep, which was already a place where any sense of morality had long since been abandoned. But that was in the Wild North, beyond the Wall, and now that depravity comes south and infests the Seven Kingdoms. Norms, customs, institutions, they only have power insofar as there is total buy-in to them. It's a shadow on the wall. It's the lies we tell ourselves to hold the realm together, as Vera says to Littlefinger in Season 3. I don't think the Red Wedding is meant to be a didactic piece of storytelling, nor do I think George is telling his readers that he thinks norms are bullshit, per se. But at the point that rape and plunder rule over Westeros, the point that war has left vast parts of the population without food or shelter, and that harvests are being raised, what the norms exist to hold together has disintegrated already. And no title, whether it's King in the North or Lord of the Riverlands or Prime Minister or President or Supreme Court Justice, can be a shield against the wholesale destruction of material conditions.
2: Something is definitely rotten in the state of Denmark, I mean the twins, and for one of the biggest breaches and violations of the norms to happen in the POV chapter of one of the biggest believers of said norms is, as a certain Sith Lord would say, ironic. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, uh, so well said both yeah. you. Um, I think this, the the guest right bit, this is the most crucial part of the chapter in terms of what happens next, and I think it's it's often misunderstood. When Catelyn thinks that Walder's bread and salt will keep them safe, she doesn't mean it literally. I mean, what's the next thing she does? She tells Edmure, but still post uh, guards outside her doors. Like, it's not like the gods are going to descend from on high to enforce these norms, and it's, it's definitely not like Catelyn just trusts Walder Frey now. Catelyn believes that guest right will keep them safe because the social consequences of violating that norm are extreme. We see that in the wake of the Red Wedding. Everyone from Tyrion to Davos, from the Royces in the Vale to the Manderleys in the North, everyone considers the phrase to be pariahs for what they do here. And while the phrase obviously couldn't have known Catelyn would rise from her watery grave to drag them all down with her, the vengeful wrath embodied by Lady Stoneheart is an entirely predictable result of the Red Wedding. In this society, guest right means more than having good manners, it's the glue that binds everyone together, it's what prevents total war. It's the idea that some things are beyond the pale, that because human vulnerability is inevitable, we should carve out spaces for that vulnerability to exist. If you kill someone at dinner, or even worse, at a wedding, what won't you do? Where can you find safety or security or peace? Nowhere. Nothing and no one can be trusted at that point. And this is even more significant for Northmen because during long winters, honoring guest right makes the difference between life and death. But this is a tricky subject, because as Manu said, norms like these are frequently used as a way for people to lie to themselves about the cruelty and exploitation that persists regardless. Guestright didn't stop Gregor from raping that girl at the inn in that story Aureo overheard at Harren Hall. So you could say this is just one more way the nobles of Westeros tell each other that they behave better than they really do. I think it's noteworthy, though, that when Catalan first raises the issue of Guestright to Rob in this chapter, he says he doesn't need it, because he has an army to protect him. Well, that doesn't work out either. The question isn't whether social norms or brute force rule the day. It's why we believe the things we believe. And that gets back to what Alex is saying about how the Red Wedding works through Catalan's eyes specifically and how devastating it is because she's built not just her one political faction, not even just her family, but her whole conception of how Westerosi society works is built on the idea that as bad as things can get, we don't do this. And that's, you can also see that in Robert's Rebellion, that maybe the story Catelyn tells herself is Eris broke the norms and look what happened. We all got together and we all got him. And the fact that children were also killed for Robert to take the throne, we're just going to not think about that. We're going to sweep that under the rug. But she has that story she tells herself and she believes it. And I think people believe in Guest Right because as bad as things get in Westeros, it would unquestionably be much worse if no one could ever put their sword down to eat and rest. And people, I think, I think people hate the phrase for putting that in danger, for putting that at risk. So while this moment seems like the doom of the Stark Tully cause, I think Walter is also sealing his own fate here. He's painting a target on the backs of his own family, cursing them in the eyes of not only the gods, but I think more importantly, cursing them in the eyes of their fellow man.
2: I do like that, what you said there, because for Kat, what we see with her when she's in the veil um, at the, Trial of Tyrion, you just see her (laughs) just kind of just like rolling her eyes and just ignoring all the absurdity of people not following the rules. And then at the, uh, Baratheon brother parlay, she is more, um, reacting to them directly, but she still is kind of just letting it play out, even though she just wants to, as she said, just bang their heads together. And then she comes here to this one and it mostly happens in uh, the Red Running when she like pleads with Walder. Mm -hmm. But again, she's just like at these places where there's established framework of, like, how these proceedings happen, how it should go, what you should do in these scenarios. And the Veil vale Lords to the Brathian Brothers to Walter Frey are just going to say, no, like, I don't want to. Like, con- like Renly basically just says, the consequences be damned. I'm going to do it anyway, YOLO. Um, and Walter Frey's kind of saying the same thing, too. And so, yeah, for Kat being this person who wants to bind people together and you just, you interact with these bad faith actors who just... There's no winning. There's no placating. There's nothing they they could have done because they made up their minds and they're going to see it through.
0: That's what really hurts her because Catalina is such a consummate politician. So the idea, the idea of the no-win scenario, I think, is just unimaginable. There's just
2: there's not a deal she can strike. There's nothing she can call upon even at the very
0: end with Walter exactly.
1: And her internal monologue is just saying, please be normal, please be normal, for the love of God, just please exactly. be normal for one goddamn moment here. <laughs> and it
0: is is—it is funny in the earlier books, it is played for a joke when the Lords of the Vale are petty assholes, and uh, Renly and Stannis are petty assholes, and Catelyn's just going, my children are more mature than you. Yeah. But this, this is the point where the humor, it's still there, but where the humor starts to bleed out and just leaves you with the horror.
1: So moving on, Catelyn's shocked at the lavish nature of the bridal suites for the happy couple and the other VIPs, but this is also part of Walder's plan. First, Walder doesn't want to be too much of a prick here. His little barbs and jabs are one thing, but if he also had Rob set up in the janitor's closet, it would give the game away that Walder has no desire to treat with Rob as a king. And if the accommodations are not to the king's taste, then perhaps Rob sets up a pavilion outside the castle or something like that. At this point, Walder Frey must do everything in his power to keep Rob and Catelyn and Edmure under his roof, which is probably why Walder was a little annoyed at Rob wanting to cross all of his men over. If they leave the castle grounds, who knows what may possibly happen that could pull Walder Frey's prey elsewhere. Edmure asks Catelyn about Roslyn. The former very pleased for the moment, the latter only able to respond, sweet, which also just rings some bell in my head as half of bittersweet, George's famous descriptor for the saga's ending. Edmure is still hung up on Roslyn's tears, which Catelyn brushes off his nerves, but also allows George to slip us a reminder about her sister Liza and John Aaron, subjects of the very last revelation in this book. Well, not counting the fact that Catelyn returns from the grave. Edmir is also unsure why he got the seemingly lone comely girl of the Frey Brood, which I think is again the same tact as the Bridal Suite. At this point, Walder Frey can't lose his prize if he chooses Edmir's Bride to be another form of insult aimed at King Rob. As Catelyn says, he did not want you upsetting all his plans, she's just wrong on the exact nature of said plans.
0: Yeah, Walter is trying to catch flies with honey as well as vinegar here. George is linking Rosalind's beauty to the beauty of the well-appointed guest rooms, the image of a proper wedding lasting just long enough to set the trap. And Edmure is such a doofus, he's such a callow man-child, that he thinks the trap might be Rosalind herself. Uh, she's just too hot. Walter has to be up for something. And he is, but he's got the Tullies looking in the wrong place. Edmure points out the real trap without even realizing it, that from Walter a few nasty comments is the usual. Catelyn is, quote, strangely disquieted by that, realizing, if only on an unconscious level, that Walder isn't actually angry enough for his standards given Rob's betrayal, but she leaves it there, because she doesn't have enough information to put it all together in time.
1: Yeah, beyond just ensuring Edmure doesn't flee hours before the ceremony, Lord Walder wants Edmure to be into his wife so they can make sons and tie House Frey to River Run by Blood. There's going to be a major upheaval in the Riverlands due to the Red Wedding, with the Freys coming out on top and most of the other river lords submitting themselves back to the Iron Throne. The best way to minimize violence is to use Tully blood to grant House Frey legitimacy. This is the same gambit the Boltons are going to try in the North, though they have to settle with a fake Arya Stark for their game of Northern Thrones. As Catelyn says, Walder Frey is peevish, not stupid. He might be a slight and petty man, but he wasn't just going to murder Rob and Catelyn out of pure rage. He has the backing of Tywin Lannister, has done what he can to ensure the legitimacy of his house going forward, and done everything right in his performance to Rob and company to ward off any hint of deception. He was just the right amount of abrasive, cruel, mocking that makes everyone go, yeah, that's Walder Frey, without showing the knife in his hand.
2: Yeah, there's just a m- number of moments in the series that just ju- juxtapose brass tacks with absurdity. The Freys are about to murderate the fuck out of Rob, all the king's horses, all the king's men, but they want to have the seemliness and etiquette to say, "Oh, but Edmure's child is a Frey. That red wedding business was just a blip, a small faux pas. But you know, we totally play by the rules and should totally still sit within polite society with everyone else."
1: There's a lot of bleak stuff in this set of chapters, so I just want to give a tip of the cap to Edmir Tully, Nap King, who tries to sneak (laughs) in an hour respite before the festivities. I, too, love naps, especially when I know I have a long night ahead of me, so you do you, Edmir. Catelyn wanders while her brother catches some Zs and stumbles upon Lothar and several of his kin having a drink. All of them appear to be knights. Well met, sirs, Catelyn says, which shouldn't really be out of the ordinary for a well-populated house of a notable lord, but coming back to this on reread, it's like, oh yeah, all these men are soldiers. Meanwhile, any fray that has any loyalty towards the Starks are nowhere to be found. Catelyn asks after Sir Perwit, who had guided her to the Baratheon debate in a Clash of Kings, but he is regrettably not there to attend much like Rob's first squire, Oliver Frey, will not be present when Catelyn asks about him and her following chapter. We've talked about how all the little details surrounding the Red Wedding help make it such a worthwhile moment, from the events at Duskendale to what will spin out in White Harbor in A Dance with Dragons. But even the very basic accounting of which Freys are here at the Twins for the wedding and which are not is just some expert detail orientation, really feeling like every aspect of the story is locking into place. Catelyn seeks out Maester Brennett to ask about Rosalind's fertility, to which the good maester responds she should be able to provide Edmure with the issue, something we talked about earlier. In Cat 5, Catelyn had to face down the possibility that she may have failed in her feudal and marital duties if Rod had no trueborn siblings to inherit his crown, thinking them all dead or lost to Lannisters. Ensuring the Tully line now becomes a priority, even if it's not directly through her, but her brother but what I seized on was Catelyn thinking the maester would also be a Frey himself, and later learning one of Roslyn's siblings went on to become a maester. We haven't learned too much about the maesters yet in A Song of Ice and Fire, in terms of who they are and where they come from, but their familial ties become a talking point in the northern plot of A Dance with Dragons, while their actual politicking is glimpsed in Old Town chapters in A Feast for Crows.
0: George is once again here distracting the reader from what's about to happen, focusing our attention on the question of Rosalind's fertility, so it seems like this whole cluster of chapters really is about nothing more important than Edmure getting hitched. But at the same time, George is still dropping subtle hints. Like when Maester Burnett lists off Roslyn's surviving siblings, they include both Perwin and Olivar, making it all the more suspicious they're not here. She's not even a half-sibling, she's a full-blood sibling. So where are they? He's also continuing the theme of gender politics that Catelyn tells this group, this uh, roomful of male, phrase that she needs to see the maester for quote a woman's complaint, implying you know oh it's something to do with menstruation so you know you feel icky you don't ask any further questions. She doesn't want to admit that she's asking after Rosalind's fertility because these are her uh, brothers and cousins that might be awkward. Again, political and military alliances hinge on these these personal, physical, intimate issues.
1: It seems fitting that the very last act of this chapter brings us back to Roose Bolton, last seen saying goodbye to Jamie Lannister at Harrenhal. Here, he is described wearing a pale pink cloak, the very descriptor we'll read in Catelyn 7 when Roose gives Rob Jamie's regards. But Roose Bolton is more than just bad news, he's the bearer of bad news too. He provides updates on the Trident, Wendell's brother Willis is taken, and Winterfell, uh, Kerwin and Talhart dead in addition to Sir Roderick. Just like with Robert's Rebellion, we are seeing an entire generation of people killed or materially harmed that will both immediately and long-term upset rule in the North. While yes, that is a byproduct of war, between Rusas scheming, Ramsay's tricks up North, and the upcoming wedding murders, the next generation of Northern Lords are being pruned by means outside the normal, outside the acceptable way for folks to die. This chapter also gives us Roose's estimation of his bastard son, who Catelyn is quick to remind everyone has done unspeakable crimes. Bolton, in an effort to control what assholes would call the quote-unquote narrative, is already seeding some righteous retribution in Ramsay's actions, both to provide some legitimacy to his son and also align the Boltons with the Stark cause as tools of their vengeance. Most people in this room will be dead soon enough, but still, Roose Bolton has to spin a compelling tale after the Red Wedding to minimize the challenges to the upcoming Bolton rule in the North. There's some good doublespeak in here too, saying that for all Ramsay has done, his grace must weigh and judge him. Roose in the end surely means the king on the Iron Throne, Joffrey right now, but and when it matters, who will see what Ramsay and Roose did to secure Lannister hegemony and remove the taint of bastardy from Ramsay. And don't miss Roose once again mentioning his new Bride Lady Walda. The coziness of Bolton and Frey isn't just mutual collaboration, but how entwined the two families will be heading into A Dance with Dragons. One of my favorite, if nonsensical, A Song of Ice and Fire crackpots is the bolt-on theory, positing that Roose himself is a vampire, and perhaps wears the flesh of his flayed victims. The leech lord too, which clearly analogizes Roose to a blood-sucking creature. I don't think that's true for our story, but both vampires and Roose Bolton are fictional creations downstream from Vlad the Impaler, the famous late medieval ruler of Wallachia who is tied to the Dracula mythos in Bram Stoker's seminal novel. Vlad the Impaler was also known as Vlad Draculia, meaning Son of the Dragon. His father was Vlad Dracul, meaning Vlad the Dragon. Like Rus Bolton, Vlad's most striking physical characteristic were his eyes, according to what sources we have large, deep set, dark green, and penetrating eyes, compared to Rus's, whose eyes are paler than stone, darker than milk, as described in Jamie 5. Vlad also had shifting allegiances in his time conquering and trying to rule in Wallachia, including allying with the hated Ottomans for a time to retake his home region, while the ostensible ruler was away elsewhere and later in life would oppose the very same Ottomans in a refusal to pay homage, which, if you replace Ottomans with Lannisters, is not too dissimilar with what Roose Bolton is doing, using war elsewhere to make a play for his own home region. And as hinted in A Dance with Dragons, Roose's ambitions or goals may even include challenging the Lannister hold on the Iron Throne when all is said and done, though I think Stannis Baratheon will make sure we never see what that would look like. And of course, the main reason I bring up Vlad with Rus is their reputation for cruelty. While the stories about Vlad the Impaler are definitely exaggerated due to political interests of the time, there is little doubt that he ruled harshly and exercised extreme malice towards his enemies, included the so implied impaling. Rus Bolton specializes in flaying instead, but the idea is the same. I just think it's... Neat that Roose Bolton, maybe a second or probably a third tier villain in the story, behind the others, and Tywin, and Joffrey, and Euron, is as rich a character as he is, especially in only fleeting appearances thus far in the story. We'll have even more opportunity to dig into him when he features prominently in Theon's arc in A Dance with Dragons.
0: Like I've said before, Roose is one of my favorite characters. Not because there's any depth to him, but because of how George writes him, that, that combination of ferocity and restraint. I don't think he's literally a vampire either, but George writes him that way on purpose. He's drawing from his own work in Fever Dream, his 1982 vampire novel, in which he presents vampires as analogous to the American slaver class, with all the aristocratic manners of old Europe taking root in the, new, in the New World. Here, George is showing us how that persona is a pretense concealing bloodlust on a cross-continental scale. Like how Walder pretends to care about his daughter's honor, Roos feigns gentility and amiability. He's just a quiet, soft-spoken man in the corner. You could just easily overlook him. In both cases, it doesn't really fool anyone. Walder's misogyny is obvious, and Catalan not only thinks that Roos is cold in this scene, she recognizes it's not the first time she's thought that. But it's enough plausible deniability to distract from their real goals and methods. The reader already knows how cruel Roos is. We saw his regime at Harrenhal where he seemed to be trying to outmatch the Lannisters in terms of sheer Baroque awfulness to the small folk under his thumb. And George always emphasizes how creepy the Leech Lord is by focusing on his his faint voice, his pale eyes, how casually he describes ultra violence, But none of it is directed at the Starks and Tullys, to whom he is unfailingly polite. As with the phrase at Riverrun, he passes on a load of grade-A bullshit about what went down at Winterfell. But for the first-time reader, it's possible that... Roose has just been lied to by Ramsay. After all, Roose demonstrates here how easily and happily he'll throw his bastard under the bus, so we might not be inclined to connect the dots.
1: And part of the fun is that Roose himself is a very able political player, more so than say Joffrey or ramsey He correctly surmises that Theon will have value for the upcoming struggle for the Seastone Chair, and that his competitors will want Theon dead every bit as Rob does. He's also got a great story ready to go about the trouble on the Trident, blaming himself for the delay, and having only crossed his own men over the rivers before Gregor Clegane descended on them. He very astutely left Rob Loyalist to hold the river, making sure they are not around for the Red Wedding, and also leaving them prone for attack from both sides after the wedding. Oh, and he's keeping the remaining Karstark men close to his own. He sells it to Rob like Michael Corleone talking to Frank Pentangeli in The Godfather Part 2. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. In retrospect, though, we know that the Boltons and Karstarks are in cahoots.
0: Yeah, it's great logistical work on George's part. No hand-waving away the details, no Danny forgetting the Iron Fleet exists or anything like that. Roose never directly turns on his fellow Northmen until the Red Wedding itself. Up until then, he just gets them killed by Lannisters. And every time it happens, he has a plausible excuse for Rob. Oh, Tywin outnumbered me on the Green Fork. Robert Glover was driven by grief into the folly of Duskendale. Gregor just happened to catch up to me at the Ruby Ford. It's only when you put them all together, in retrospect, that a narrative comes through. Roos sent his rivals into the front lines at the Green Fork, preserving his own men. Then he sent Stark loyalists to Duskendale, pretending it was on Rob's orders, knowing from Tywin that Gregor and Randall Tarley would trap them there. And now we learn about the Ruby Ford. Roose, yeah, very cleverly takes the blame here, pretending it was it was just a failure of leadership on his part. I left too late. No one's going to suspect him of treachery when it's just easier to blame incompetence. But on reread, like you say, it stands out that it just happened to be Manderly men on the south bank, along with some mountain clansmen. Diehard Stark loyalists, all of them, as we'll see more of in A Dance with Dragons. All of this was necessary. Every domino had to fall to lead us here, Because the Freys have to do more than just kill Rob himself. In order to avoid immediate reprisals, they also have to wipe out his army. Or at least those among his army who are loyal to him. And because Walder Frey is a coward as well as a bully and a liar, there was no way he was ever going to do that if there was any risk of losing. That's why Roose was brought in on the deal. Despite having convinced the Bloody Mummers to betray Tywin in the previous book, you'd think that'd put him on the Lannister shit list, but here he is. It's not just that Tywin needed a patsy to run the north until Tyrion and Sansa give him a grandchild. It's also that Tywin needed to make sure Rob was outnumbered at the twins, so Walder could be reassured and get the go-ahead. So ultimately, this comes down to a numbers game. Roose has, he says, 3,500 men left, equal to Rob's forces. Put Roose together with the Freys, and they have Rob outnumbered something like 2 to 1. So much of this has been in plain view for the reader, but not for our POV characters necessarily. And the first-time reader is likely to nod along with Catelyn when she says that Duskendale is yesterday's news. It seems like that, but it holds the, the kernel of a, about what's to happen today.
1: And speaking of Catelyn, for her faint moment, I really love the fact that she wants to savor the bit of Theon that Roose has presented her with. It'd be very easy to have Catelyn react like everyone else, disgusted at the sight of Theon's flayed skin, but it's so much richer, and portentous, to let a little bit of that bloodlust show in Catelyn. At some level, we all have an appetite for vengeance, big or small, and her brief dalliance with that thought bleeds nicely into her final murder of Jingle Bell next chapter, and of course, into her Lady Stoneheart era.
2: Yeah, there's uh, another um, uh, kind of uh, off-the-wall theory, a cat, um, a ghost ship of corruption and the grim macabre. But yeah, Cat and her like, bloodlust, her vengeance. I mean, earlier she talks about wanting to like choke Cersei, um, there was her fighting off the uh, a brand's would be assassin as well. Like Cat, Catlin Tully Stark is about that action. Like she will, she will get down uh, and, and fight with the best of them.
0: Yeah, it's a crucial moment with implications for not only Catelyn but also the reader. George is giving us just a little taste, just an appetizer of his strategy with Theon in a Dance with Dragons. He made us hate him. He made us root for his comeuppance, and then he shows us what that looks like: torture and mutilation. Rob is 100% right when he says that flaying Theon won't bring Bran and Rickon back. (laughs) I mean, also because they're not actually dead. But I think you're right that all of us feel that that pull for vengeance. It's primal. An eye for an eye, your pain to make up for my pain. I want you to feel how I felt so I can feel better. And it's a powerful move on George's part that he doesn't let us separate the uh, relatively likable Stark POVs from obvious villains like the Boltons. Catelyn has a version of Walder's misogyny, and she has a version of the Boltons' bloodlust. And while, you know, the phrase and the Boltons, they're, they're awful on their own terms, they don't exist in a vacuum. They're part of a society Catelyn is also a part of. And while she doesn't have their sadism, they do share some ideas, some incentives, some beliefs. What is Lady Stoneheart but Catelyn remade in her enemy's image?
1: The chapter ends with these simple words from Rob. We're going home. Which, if you are a Star Wars cell like me, you hear it in the voice of Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace when they decide to return to Naboo. Oh, you don't hear it like that? Weird. But anyway, more old hat for this podcast is talking about how George has the characters thinking just past the Red Wedding so that the reader is also looking past the event. Catelyn has already mentioned her plans to go to Seaguard, and also she's thinking about Rob's battles to come. Rob's final statement would be a mic drop in many other stories. The prodigal son is returning home, and the reader, while still nervous, should be feeling some hope or even excitement that the King of the North is about to set his kingdom to rights. Surely that will be a nice consolation prize for the death of Ned, the death of Bran and Rickon, quote unquote, and the sack of Winterfell.
0: It's what they deserve, after all. And yeah, never, never ever say you're going home. It's like promising to talk about something important later. That's just, that's just begging for a death sentence from the fates. And on reread, yeah, the way this chapter ends, this is George shifting into sicko mode. He's practically congratulating himself on how he's fooled the first-time reader. Even the structure of the book is in on the joke. We're like a little under two-thirds of the way through a storm of swords. Plenty of time for Rob to do what you're talking about. Win his battle at Mokailin, be home by the end of the book. First-time reader might think that's exactly what's going to happen. Hey, we haven't been at Winterfell for a while. This is how we're going back. Everything is in place for that to be the next plot point, and that's what makes it so disorienting and devastating when George pulls the rug out from underneath us instead, and we see that entire story structure dissolve in blood. So, uh, shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, a lot of that to do here, especially in terms of what happens next, but also some uh, further down the line. Catalin compares the rain-soaked banners at the twins to drowned cats, which is, that's a hell of a line on Reread, unknowingly prophesying her own fate when the phrase throw her body in the river. She's about to be the drowned cat.
2: It also reminds me of um, the chapter after The Shadow Baby all the grays where you can't really make out sigils and devices, the world of like gray shades, things like that. That was also what I was getting from the um, rain soaked banners. I mean, the drowned cat, like that is just, you know, <laughs> who's that sign bit for? I don't know, but, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't I'll... affect
0: me. I can't read. No, that's a good comparison. Cause this is like, we've mentioned a couple times. This is, uh, has some very interesting parallels to Renly's death. We'll talk more about that uh, next time for sure. Uh, Walder mentions that Amy, also known as gatehouse. Amy is a widow. In the next book, in *A Feast for Crows*, she'll be married off to Lancel at
1: Darry, but that won't last long either. I don't know; she just can't keep him. Yeah, I mean, Lancel's a cat. He's just busy gallivanting around in *Feast for Crows*, playing with all the women. If I remember correctly, that's exactly <laughs> what he's
0: doing. Yeah, 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 Lancel yeah. Lannister, playboy. I believe that's—I believe that's how that goes.
2: Maybe Amy and Marjorie can start like a a multi-married club or something. Have like a group chat for the, <laughs> uh, the Black Widows group chat. Yeah, Black Widows
0: <laughs> club or something. Little spider emojis would <laughs> be perfect. Uh Rus mentions that he plans to get walda pregnant as soon as possible and he finally will in a dance with dragons although ramsay is visibly unhappy about it and of course we we know where that goes in the in the show and i think it's going to go in a similar direction in the book
2: i kind of hope it has just like a little bit more oomph than it did in the show like the sh- <laughs> a little
0: bit more dignity yeah i mean
2: the show was just like it wasn't even like uh perfunctory it just like happened so I mean and you-
0: then Ramsay was like I'm in charge, tell me I'm not. Yeah, a lot of plot points in season 6 specifically were like that. Yeah. Where people would just like kill people and say what of it. I think it would be uh one difference in the sh- in the in the books of course is that you have uh Barbary, Dustin and a lot of other northern nobility who don't like Ramsay. Yeah. So it would be interesting if Ramsay pulls that off and then they just go, "No, though you're not."
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're
0: not actually in charge here though.
1: Yeah, I think dance and into wins, we're going to see like a real tension between Roos and Ramsay, whereas it was very clear. The show was like, let's kill the old guy off so we can have the hot, young, sexy actor center stage for his big (laughs) showdown with Jon Snow. Um, That's also, I think, informing why Stannis was killed off so that we could have Jon Snow lead the battle at Winterfell instead of Stannis. But
2: that's a whole other conversation. Ageism (laughs) strikes again. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, one last bit of foreshadowing that they mention Wireless Manderley has been taken prisoner again by Gregor Kilgain. <laughs> Poor sucker to imagine getting uh, taken prisoner twice by the mountain. Uh, he is later freed by Jamie at Hall. He's in pretty rough shape. And he is sent north to win over the Manderleys, or so it seems. Of course, Wyman pretends to make that deal, but is actually uh, cutting deals with Davos and his fellow Northmen on the side. But George does keep that Manderley in place just so he can make that plot point work.
1: I sure hope the North remembers that it was Jamie Lannister who helped bring that about.
0: The North will strategically be forgetting about that. <laughs> the North occasionally remembers, should be their little slogan.
2: The truth the North wants to forget.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So moving into theory and discussion, there's one tiny little plot point from this chapter that people love to bring up, uh, people who are or swaff sickos like we are love to bring up. That Bruce mentions that Gregor that Gregor Clegane will not be crossing the Ruby Four to threaten them because he left like six hundred guys behind uh, under uh, Kyle Condon and what Ronald Stout to uh, two extreme random tertiary names that George picked out of a, an ASWAF name hat, uh, and these are these are guys we never hear about again. We, uh, Bruce leaves them behind because presumably they would be Stark loyalists. Never hear about them again. So what, what what do we think? Is this going to be a thing? Is this going to be a plot point, or is this going to be like that one time where George invented that Tyroshi cell sword and then immediately forgot about him in the next book?
2: I think there's a chance they might come back because um, I I want like we know that Robs Wells with um mage and um other guy Glover
0: the uh Gal, yeah yeah Galbert Galbert Glover.
2: Glover so we know like part of what's happening here is going to make it to the team stark north at some point so i imagine if like a kyle condon were to link up back in winterfell with pro stark forces he could be like well i went over with roos and then everyone died so yeah i mean maybe that could be part of like the the um uh, chain of evidence of like on unspooling the mystery behind the red weddings or more properly uh getting the architects known
0: I like that. That's a good point because it's it's left unclear in dance. Maybe because there's just so much going on in dance about what the Northmen know about Roose and his involvement with the Red Wedding. Yeah, because it's not as obvious as the phrase uh, or Tywin. But like you know, I would think if I was a random like northern nobility person left behind from the war, and Roose showed up as the new warden of the North, and his entire army is still intact, I would be going hmm. <laughs> Seems like you might have been on it, but there's no direct evidence so that, yeah, I can see that coming into
2: play. Yeah, what do you think? So, I know?
0: Oh, sorry. Go I was going to
2: say, like, so if if Kyle Condon is the link to all of Roose's losses, that could be part of, like, the smoking gun for him.
0: That makes sense. Like with uh, Tyric Lannister about Cersei's uh, crimes.
1: Yeah. I know you said only us, the Song of Ice and Fire, sickos know who Kyle Condon was, but when you put his name in the outline, I was like who? And I wikied it, and I'm like, oh, Sideshow Bob. <laughs> uh, but because of his, you know, generally small stature in this overall story, I feel like he's someone who if he shows up again, he feels like he'd be sucked up by the sponge that is the Brotherhood without Banners, or the multiple brotherhoods that are kind of floating around. Right, right. So if you find him like just as part of the crew when we get to the Winds of Spring, and he's with either the Adric Dane portion, um, for some reason I just don't see him go- making it all the way up north to wherever Stoneheart's in and Hagsmire or whatever. But I can just totally see him being part of a brigand band that's in the Riverlands and most likely tied to the Brotherhood at some point.
0: I like the idea of him being with the Brotherhood, maybe even Stoneheart's branch, because it would help. And this is the kind of thing George can obviously get around any way he wants to, but if uh, the Brotherhood does uh, go uh, head-to-head with the Freys at some point, even if it's an ambush situation, there is the question of numbers with that, because the Freys, even after sending a bunch of men north, still have a pretty powerful army. And the Brotherhood, you know, we've we've seen them in groups at a time, a dozen here, a dozen there. And you get You get the impression that maybe... If you you know you put them all together, you'd get like a pretty sizable army. But it might make it more credible for them to take on the phrase if they have some like leftover guys like these from Rob's army. So if Kyle Cunden and a few hundred men and a couple other leftovers, maybe some guys that Blackfish knows, maybe that 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 maybe they, maybe they could get together into something. And do a guerrilla force strong enough to take on like all the frays at once, which might be what they end up doing. So I can see George using that to, to stiffen his numbers there. Or, you know, Kyle Conda went back to his home planet and and died on the way. That could, that could just as easily work.
1: Now, this is just how a gardener works. He throws seeds into the soil and maybe some of them will grow. Maybe some of them will not. But at least he's planted them. So if he ever needs to come back, he can tend to it.
2: Yeah, Kyle Condon will be the 20 good men that uh, undo the, <laughs> the, the, the phrase at, at uh, the Twins.
0: I can't wait for them any day now. They're coming over the horizon. So I think that is going to wrap us up for a Storm of Swords, Catalan 6. Alex, I'm so glad you were able to come back, especially for a catch after before we finished her up. Thank you so much.
2: Yes, thank you so much for, for having me on the main cast. I looked up my uh, small council title, so I will read it in full as my as my parting. Um, this Heck, has yeah. been Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite Stan, Herald of Cher and Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Thaedes and Gentle Them's, and the not a Cast Non-Binary Not an Art me
0: beautiful one of one of the best titles for sure so, thanks for listening, everyone. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com/notacast a s o i a f, where our patrons get exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast a s o i a f, or shoot us an email at notacast a s o i a f at gmail.com,
1: and you can find me at Por Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu at Nuclear Bomb. You can find my other other podcast covering the Lord of the Rings at my brother, my captain, my
0: podcast. And my next Lord of the Rings episode is going to be out for all of our $5 and above patrons next week, covering uh, Book 6, Chapter 5, The Steward and the King, the chapter that's partially about Aragorn coming into his kingdom and partially about Faramir and Eowyn flirting in a trauma ward. Definitely a, a fun chapter to cover. A couple weeks after that i'll be back with star wars for all of our five dollar and above patrons covering uh, the second uh, part of a new hope the original movie when we meet luke skywalker so anyone going over to patreon.com slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f and signing up for the five dollar and above tier will get access to all of our star wars and lord of the rings episodes and all the upcoming episodes but next time in the song of ice and fire do i even have to say it we're here with A Storm of Swords, Catalan 7 and Arya 11, in which a lion still has claws, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. Hopefully
1: there are many souls who will hear that song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. We're up to episode 200, our 200th episode. It worked out so perfectly that our big 200th anniversary episode is on the Red Wedding itself. Obviously I've been looking forward to this for a very, very long time, so it's going to be a great episode. That's going to be coming your way in a couple weeks. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we will uh, see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords Catalan 7 and Arya 11.